Grab your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, uh, we want to, uh, as we always or usually do on Sunday evenings, expand on what it is we talk about in the morning. So we've been talking about uh, the issue of temptation to the lens of David and the story of Bathsheba. And uh, we really want to look at part two of what we opened up last Sunday evening, um, where we looked at the bait of temptation, uh, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. And now we, we want to look at the hook. And we'll do that in Ephesians chapter 2. Just want to read the first three verses. So if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's word. The Apostle Paul writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as always, we, we ask uh, that you would open our hearts and our mind uh, and our our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands, and our feet, and that you would transform us, that we may engage in this war uh, um, with the flesh and the world and the devil. Uh, but Lord, we graciously need your help in that work. So would you help us this evening? And may I decrease so that you can increase. In your son we pray. Amen. Well, you can already tell uh, that the idea of fishing is, is, is the big metaphor that not only does the Bible use, we, we, we showed it from James chapter 2, I believe it was last week. I could be wrong in that exact reference, but I do know it's the book of James, uh, where that metaphor is used to describe how temptation works. Remember that uh, the bait is hooked. We are enticed is, is, is the word. It's, it's, a, it's a fishing word in Greek. And so we are drawn in. And so last week we saw the bait, again, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. And you may remember we, we said that uh, the fishing, is, it's, it's, not, it's not that creative, right? Um, it, it, it can work not just with fish, it works with anything. Basically, when you go hunting, there is usually some sort of bait, right? Maybe it's a decoy or, or whatever it might be. Uh, but the, the, any sort of hunting is that way. But it isn't just hunting. You remember I joked that if, if your mother put um, a hook inside the turkey this Thanksgiving, right? You know, you're going down. And, and of course, your, your mother would never do that. Your, your mother-in-law would do that, but not your mother, right? Um, and uh, so, so for me, you know, I, I like turkey as much as the next guy. Uh, but for me, if it is real mashed potatoes and my mother's mac and cheese, right? I, I, I tell you, the, 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 the stuffing was just perfect uh, uh, throughout the weekend. I mean, that, that's, that's when you know it's, it's, it's a good, good Thanksgiving. But uh, nevertheless... Uh, I thought of other ways that we think of bait and hook, some you know, more, more silly ones. Um, if you want to get a pastor to come to any event, if you need a pastor to show up for anything, it doesn't matter what it is, you need to advertise it with two words, free books, right? Free books, right? That, that will get them coming out. Uh, they will get ordained on the way there, okay, <laughs> just to get, get the free books. A lot of my library has been built on those sort of things, uh, free books. 
Um, I remember um, whenever I was a teenager, I would go to a music festival in Bushnell, Illinois. It's called Cornerstone Festival. Looked forward to it every year, whenever year when I was in high school. And it was just, just you know, just uh, think a Christian Woodstock, if you will. It lasted for about four or five days. And yes, we were stinky and it was muddy and we all did it to the glory of God. But one of the things I loved about that was they would give out CDs. Right, all, all these new bands are trying to get their names out, and they they give out CDs and stickers and posters and patches, and there's there would be books for the various seminars and stuff. Uh, so I always look look forward to that. We would take a, a, a bag for all the free stuff that we would need to to bring back. Uh, I always joke that every time I hear the word coupons, you've seen me do this. You know, I'll, I'll joke about all the women in my life. No coupons, right? You know, you you had me at coupons, right? You know. And uh, or Coles cash, right? <laughs> you know, it's the same sort of thing. It's bait and hook. And you try to explain. Look, this coupon, yes, it's half off. But get this: if you didn't spend any money, you would save more money just than using the coupon, right? You know, yeah, but it's half off. When are we going to see it half off, right? I'm offering it to you free. Don't buy it, right? Coles cash, well, you know how much money I have to spend to get that Coles cash? Well, I've got it. I might as well use it, right? It's still the same bait and hook, um, and this is how temptation works. So we saw lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Uh, I think, think I, I put them up there. All that is just review. But I want us to look at the, the hooks of temptation. And once again, there are three. They're right here in this text, and let's look at them. The first one is the flesh. We could describe this as our internal enemy. Uh, Paul, you see there, says, You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Skip down to verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the minds. The flesh is part of our fallen nature that will be with us until the day that we die. And Jesus is very clear that our flesh is weak. We talked about this uh, to a certain extent this morning with David. Jesus says in Mark 7, For out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of the covenant, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and they follow man, right? And in the big debate that Jesus was having the religious elites was, you think that it's the outside that the that, that, that defines a man, defiles a man. He says, what, what, what comes out of a man, it, it comes within the heart, right? And so, so it's these more spiritual issues, these fleshly issues, uh, that is the real concern. Paul, we saw a few weeks ago in our study of Galatians 5, the deeds of the flesh are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. And those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of, of God. And you remember what comes next, starting in verse 22 and on into verse 23, and that is the, the fruit of the Spirit. So you have the deeds of the flesh, the fruit of the flesh, and you have the deeds of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit. Now, of course, the weapon we use against the flesh is the gospel. We don't indulge in the flesh. We crucify it. We are new creatures in Christ, a holy temple. We dare not desecrate it. We know that Jesus is better in the flesh and our joy is found in him and is not found inside of us. Paul addresses this in the book of Romans. You remember in Romans 6, the question is raised, should I continue to sin if that means grace will continue to abound, right? Remember in chapter 5, he ends by saying where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And that leads to the libertarian question of, well, then should I just keep sinning so that grace can keep abounding, right? And you remember Paul's answer is, is no, right? You know, spoiler alert, it's, it's no, right? 
But he, he gives two illustrations in order to make that point. The first is, he, he says, you need to remember your baptism. Remember your baptism is, it is it's objectively about Christ and it's subjectively about our redemption in Christ. Objectively, Christ is, is, is died uh, and, and uh, he, he is buried and he is raised again. So too, we have died to the old man. We've been washed and cleansed and we are raised anew. Therefore, you, you are not defined by your sin. You don't live in that sin. That's not who you are anymore. And the second illustration he uses is not only should you remember your baptism, you should remember your freedom. That is to say that, that you were bought at a price, and you're either going to be a slave of Christ or you'll be a slave of sin. One leads to genuine freedom. The other leads to decay and, and death. Don't give in to our internal enemy, the flesh. Paul will state this in Colossians 3. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. Notice his point there is that if, if we are armed with the gospel, then we are alive in Christ and we are dead to sin. That's his point, isn't it? We, we, we war against the flesh with the gospel. We die to the flesh. We live for Christ. That is, we declare war against it. In a sermon, John Piper once said, I hear so many Christians murmuring about their imperfections and their failures and their addictions and their shortcomings, and I see so little war. Murmur, 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 why am I this way? Make war. Don't just bellyache about your failures. Make war. I find that really, really insightful. Simple, but, but insightful. How many people do, do I hear complain about how they can't break that habit or they can't accomplish this goal or they, they keep having this, this conversation in their marriage, and yet there's so little war? We think that just by associating ourselves with the church or with the Savior, it should just automatically just disappear. But if we would make war with the gospel, there can be genuine freedom in it all. So while Paul can argue in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Therefore I run in such a way not, as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. You see what he's doing? He uses the illustration of, of an athlete who trains his body in the sport that he is participating in so that he can win. The same is true with the Christian when it comes to battling the flesh. About a month or two ago, actually it was the month of October, uh, late October, and my son, who doesn't like running, he thinks it's boring. There needs to be a ball, something to kick, something to chase after, something like that. He'll get over that. Um, he says, Dad, when, when is the next race? So, well, son, the next race is, is the biggest one in the city. It's, it's the Black Cat Chase to, and that the YMCA puts on. It's a big fundraiser for them. It's a good race. I've ran it. And it's a lot of fun. So, so if you want one that's bigger, uh, it's, it's really good. He goes, how about we, we both run that? Now, my son hates running. He'll tell you. It's, it's, it's boring. It's terrible. Why would anyone do that and waste their time doing that, right, when there's video games, right? I mean, that's the sort of way, way he thinks. I said, okay, son. So you're telling me you want to just show up Friday evening, I mean, it's the week of the race, and just go run 3.1 miles. Yeah. Okay. Well, I got the thing about it. I almost signed up for it, right? And I thought, well, why don't we just push this date back a little bit? So there's one in December. It's coming up, I think, next week. And uh, I said, so why don't, we, why don't we, so we have a month and a half, right? It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a short time to really train for a race, but, but you know, give you an idea. It's just a 5K, not, not, not too bad, a good place to start. And you're young. You, 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 you've cut Muscles in your earlobes, I'm sure, so you'll, you'll get over all that. So how about we just shoot for December, we'll, we'll run a race. We went out and we did it one training run. Now, 5K is a little over three miles. Our training run consisted of a half a mile jog around our neighborhood. He was done never to do it again. <laughs> right? 
<laughs> like, uh, just, just like, and you wanted to run an actual race? I, I, I've told this story before that one of the things that I love about local races is, is you get these kids. They're always male, always male. And these, these little boys, and they, 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 they talk smack. They, 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 they stand right at the starting lineup, right, right in the front, because they're going to win. They've never ran before. They have no idea what three miles actually means, right? And they take off sprinting, right? And, and I like starting in the back, because I like passing people. It helps my, my ego. And so just bit by bit, you're passing all these kids. And every time you start to pass one of these kids, they, they look at you, and they take off running again. And, and 50 yards up, they're walking. You catch up with them, and they take off running. One kid, one kid, this was a, a fairly recent one, he, he like stayed in front of me, just, just kept cutting me off. And I eventually said, look here, Hoss, pick a lane. I'm passing you, all right? All right, I'm, I'm here jogging. You're here thinking that it's a sprint. It's not. But so too it comes to our spiritual lives, fighting against the flesh. We, we think that I can wake up today and I can be free from X, Y, or Z. And so we don't train, we don't prepare, we don't make war. And then we wonder why, when the moment of truth comes, we often fail. So there is the battle against the flesh, and the answer to the battle against the flesh is the gospel. who Christ comes to cover our sin and our shame, and he sets us free by being risen from the dead. The second hook here is the world. It is the world. That is our external enemy. You see it there again in verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Now, we don't have time to, to go in much detail here. And I think we've, we've done this in the past, especially on our Wednesday nights. But if, if you just had the Old Testament, one of the things you would notice is that there is a, a, uh, a theology of the city, if we can put it that way. And that is that the city is where bad people are. The city is where bad things happen. The city is where corruption and injustice and evil, and it's the center of economic, political power. That's, where, that's what the city represents. So let, let me just show you, just, just give you three references in Genesis. We could do the whole Old Testament. Genesis 4, 7, Cain kills Abel. What does he immediately go and do? He goes and builds a city. Names it after his son, Enoch. In Genesis 11, what happens is people build a city. We call it the Tower of Babel. Uh, Genesis 18, you remember what's the question that God poses Abraham? Or Abraham poses the God, rather. If I could find 50 righteous people in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding ones, will you spare them? Okay, okay, not 50. What if 40? It gets down to like 10. Right? If I could find anyone that is righteous in that city, will you spare it? Of course, the problem isn't just cities, but it's what they represent in the Old Testament. Cities embody worldly influence and wickedness. We could turn to Daniel 7, and what we find are four nations, uh, and, and they are depicted by predatory creatures. In Daniel 7, verse 4, Babylon is described as a lion that had eagle's wings. Verse 5, the Medo-Persians are described as a bear that had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and was told to devour much flesh. I don't know what that means, but, but I don't want to meet that beast. Verse 6, Greece is described as a leopard with four wings and four heads with dominion. Verse 7, Rome is described as a beast terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Again, I don't know what all that means, but again, I don't want to meet that animal. See, the world is not a friendly place for the righteous. 
It is hostile to godliness. It is hostile to goodness, justice, love, and the cause of Christ. It is no accident then that when Jesus launches his ministry, he doesn't start a a, a, a 501ck, whatever they're called, 401ck is whatever they're called. Rather, what he does is he announces a better kingdom. The kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. So the one hand, we cannot escape the influence and the presumptions of culture. The clothes we wear, the movies we watch, the language we speak, the books we read, all of that sort of stuff. And as hard as we might try, you you can't escape that. Um, This will probably get me in trouble. So this is meant to be somewhat of a goofy illustration. We were coming back from Thanksgiving Friday. It was dark. And I see these weird headlights. They weren't normal headlights, and they were bright, and, and, and the vehicle that was coming wasn't moving very fast. So I thought maybe they were just on the side of the road. And so as we, we pass, we realize it is uh, the Amish uh, coming uh, on, on, the, on the emergency lane in the horse right, and carriage and whatnot. And then they had headlights, very bright. You know, They worked. They had taillights in the back. Now, by law, they have to have those. There is no one here that thinks that's a bad idea. I doubt even the Amish disagree that that is a bad idea. But it sort of beats the point, doesn't it? If the whole point is to, is, is to bypass modernity, bypass those, those things that have corrupted culture, at the same time, you can't escape it. You can't escape it at all. I shared this story uh, several months ago. There was a, a senator, he put it in his memoirs, that uh, he, he was sharing with, um, um, with, with uh, 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 see, I'm not going to get it right because it's off the top of my head. He was sharing with someone else that... Uh, uh, or he was talking to an Amish man, and, and the, the Amish man says to, to the senator who's Catholic, I'm really worried about my daughter. Uh, I think she's converting to Catholicism. And the longtime senator of New York, who's Catholic, thought, wow, you know, I, I didn't know we were this good. You know, we're even reaching the, the Amish. What makes you think that she's converting to Catholicism? She, he, he said that you just won't believe it. When she gets with her friends, all they do is talk about Madonna. You know, and... Uh, that it's, it took y'all so, so a second, right? You got to go back, way back, don't you? <laughs> Little does he know that the problem is worse than, than he realizes. So on the one hand, you can't escape the presumptions and influence of culture. But on the other hand, we cannot presume the same worldview and allow ourselves to be influenced by the world instead of Christ. This is Peter's point at Pentecost when he says, with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. One of the problems of American evangelicalism, we've been doing all that we can, is, is to be so much like the world in order to win the world. And we wonder why that isn't working. That is a, a major problem with theological liberalism. Why should you engage with Christianity if Christianity is trying to do its, be itself to be like you? Just wait it out and they'll look just like you. And you, you haven't, you know, that's why theological liberal churches have been empty for decades. So I'm not saying stop watching TV or stop listening to music, stop going to the mall, if that's what people still do, I don't know. Or stop reading popular books. That's the voice of religion, that is not the voice of the gospel. Nor am I saying should we fight to recreate a mythical Mayberry. Justice is an important call for Christians, but the gospel is the primary means of of cultural reform. If you want to wage war against the world, first of all, fight the battle against the flesh. Stay married. Raise godly children. Share your faith. Die to the glory of God. 
If you want to wage war against the world, grow in your sanctification. One of the things I, I think we, we need to think in terms of America is that American culture is pantheistic. That, 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 that is, or polytheistic is, is the word I'm looking for. It's pantheistic to a certain extent, panentheistic. But polytheistic in the sense that we worship many gods. And we don't have fancy statues per se and, and, and woodsmith and whatnot or blacksmiths to, to make our idols. But we, we do worship multiple gods. I, th- I, think I, can, I think I can give you four main ones. This isn't going to be surprising. Lust, greed, power, and gratification. And I want you to see how these gods interact, because this is how, how it works in every pagan culture. You don't just have these, these gods with their own little rooms and everything, but they do interact with each other. And the same is true with American polytheism. Think about how lust has been politicized. So your position on, on um, sexual issues is a political position now. Or think about how entertainment has been sexualized. So you don't just watch to, uh, to, to, to sort of veg out before you go to bed. No, you're inundated with a political message. From the commercials you, you, you have to sit through to the shows you may have to watch. Power in politics has become a source of entertainment. I want you to do, do me a favor. I want you to pick any presidential debate, any of them, let's say of the last 50 years. Pick any of them, okay? Any of them. And I want you to time the length of each answer. Come up with an average if you want to. It could be Ronaldo's, uh, 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 Ronald's Magnus in 84. It can be the more recent one between President Trump and now President Joe Biden. It doesn't matter. It could be a primary uh, uh, debate. It could be a, a general election debate. Pick any of them. I want you to time how long each candidate has to give an answer to a question. It's usually between 30 seconds, sometimes less, to two minutes. Okay? And then I want you to read the Lincoln-Douglas debates. One of them was so long. After about two and a half hours of Douglas uh, uh, responding to Lincoln, Lincoln stands up and he says, my response will need to be so long that you should go home and have dinner first and come back. Why? Because what matters in, in any sort of political debate? Selling ads. Having, having a quote that you can put in your own ad, in a Twitter ad, an Instagram ad, in a TV ad. It's entertainment. Think about it. We don't care about what is true or what is just. We care most about who is winning. Polling matters more in politics than it does truth, justice, or the so-called American way. Why? Because we would rather be entertained than to love our neighbor. So, so, so lust has been politicized. Entertainment has been sexualized. Power has been turned into a source of entertainment. We could do this, and what, what underlies all of it is anything is justifiable so long as there is money to be made. And the second people lose money in it, then they'll change their tune. These are the gods of America. And of course, what is the weapon we use against the world? Well, the, it, of course, is the gospel. It's the gospel. Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Romans 12, I'm sure you know it. I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, here's the flesh part of it, as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And since the gospel and the kingdom of God has come, how we view the city has changed. 
I wish we had time for it. This is something I just discovered recently with uh, uh, the state minister in Virginia wrote a book on this. I found it really fascinating. What he did is he took all the cities mentioned um, in Acts with Paul's three missionary journeys. And I just, I'm just going to highlight the first missionary journey. It's the shortest one. Um, but what he does, he says, look at all these cities. Every single one of these cities is a major political and social center. Most of them are some sort of capital. For example, Jerusalem was the capital city of, of Judea, right? It's the capital. Here they are. Here's seven of them. Salamis was the largest city of Cyprus. Paphos was the capital of Cyprus. Pergo was the capital of Pamphylia. Pisidian Antioch was the capital of southern Galatia. Iconium was the capital of Lyconia. Lystra, the city near the Black Mountain. And Derby, a Roman customs checkpoint. And what, what this guy argues, I believe his name is David, is, is that in the New Testament, the city is not something to be avoided. It is something to be engaged. You remember that, that Jonah runs from Nineveh. And what you get in the Old Testament is that nations are often summarized by its capital city. Nineveh for Syria, Jerusalem for Judah, um, and Samaria for Israel. And, and the Philistines had the, the five cities, Ashkelon and Akron and all those, all those others, right? This is typical. You read the prophets and they'll often reference cities in place of nations because that's part of their theology. So when Jonah's told to go to the city, he goes as far away from that city as he can because the city is a source of evil and wickedness. But in the New Testament, the city is the place where the gospel engages. Why? Because a new kingdom has come. So Paul goes to plant churches in cities. But what does he find in those cities? Persecution, prosecution. In Lystra, I just mentioned, he is stoned and he is dragged out the city left to rot out in the Middle Eastern sun. You remember what he does in Acts 14, Lystra? He wakes up shakes his head, walks right back into the city, appoints elders, and goes on to the next city. It's because things have changed. Christ has come. The gospel is here. The kingdom of God has arrived. You see, when Christians take the gospel more seriously than their politics, good change happens. But when we take our politics more seriously than the gospel, bad change happens. Because we have lost sight of the kingdom of God. The third hook to look at this evening is the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You see it there in verses one and three, right? It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse two, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Paul makes it clear in chapter 6 of Ephesians that our real enemy is not a political enemy. It's not an economical enemy. It's not a social enemy. It's not a communal enemy. It is a spiritual enemy. He states in Ephesians 6, 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And this is what launches for him the armor of God. That means that every marriage argument you've had, every broken promise, every temptation towards rage or bitterness, every moment reveals a great cosmic war that we are fighting. We invade enemy territory when we live by the gospel. A godly marriage, an active father, a forgiving parent, an obedient child, a patient student, an active serving church is how we invade enemy territory. And such efforts are always met with resistance. 
Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 describes Satan as the God of this world. He's not saying that Satan is divine, but that he believes he is Lord over it. In 1 Peter 5, uh, the apostle says, Be a sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The problem is that whenever we think about the demonic or the devil, and this shows our influence by culture, the world, is we automatically go to, go to those strange cases that keep us entertained, right? It seems like in the movies, uh, demons only can speak in Latin. Have you noticed that? Um, and uh, it's always little kids um, that are creepy little kids, let's be honest. Uh, it's, it's like casting says, okay, we've got all these kids. Their, their mamas want them to be famous so they can live vicariously through them. So which one creeps me out the most? You. You are going to be the demonized child. Welcome to Hollywood, right? That seems to be what, what we do. Um, and, of course, there, there are uh, 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 the, the, the demonic in, particularly in the New Testament. There's some of it in the Old Testament as well. But the way the New Testament actually talks about this is not through the extraordinary demonic. And these categories I'm stealing from, from other Bible teachers. Uh, but actually describes it in the ordinary demonic. And, and I, I want to encourage you to, to think more, not exclusively, but more in these terms. Um, because I've found in counseling to point out that this area that they may be struggling with, that there's, it's, it's spiritual warfare they're engaging, and they all of a sudden panic that they're possessed. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's not how the Bible presents a lot of this. Think of this as the ordinary demonic. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you. We don't have time to go through all these. I took some out for the sake of time. The first is accusation. Accusation. This is a big one in counseling. It's a huge one. Because typically someone will come in and say, I'm stupid, fat, ugly, no one loves me, I'm all alone. Something like that. It's usually a category like that. Particularly the younger they are, the more common this is. But chances are you've been in that place, right? Uh, Martin Luther, famously or infamously, however you want to put it, whenever he, he escaped the date of Worms, he had to hide out in the Wartburg Castle. And there he took on a different persona, um, um, not King George, um, Knight George, I think it was, right? He, so he grabbed his hair. He didn't have the monk haircut or anything. Grabbed his hair. But while he was in the Wartburg Castle all alone uh, is when he translated the Bible into German, which was a capital offense at this time. And we've talked about that in the past before. Uh, but there is a famous ink blot in the Wartburg Castle. You can still go there uh, now where he threw his ink at the devil, Right? And Luther would always say the primary way the devil uh, comes after him is through accusation. And that was a struggle he had at the Deity of Worms. The night before, he was going to risk his life standing upon the gospel. All night he was up praying because all he was told is, you are wrong, of course you're wrong, you're terrible, you're a liar, all that sort of stuff. And this is how the Bible presents it, Revelation 12, right? I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren. Notice here, who is it that is being accused here? It's brothers and sisters in Christ, it's the saints. It doesn't go away. It's just still right there. He has been thrown down. He who accuses them before God day and night. Look at the story of Job. What is the story of Job? It opens up with the, the devil is hanging out with, with the sons of God. And he says, oh, of course, Job's a nice guy. <laughs> of course he is. You've wrapped him in bubble, right? You're, you're a helicopter parent, uh, God. I tell you what, uh, pop some of those bubbles and let's see what really happens. What is that? It's accusation. It's accusation. 
Or one of my favorite passages in, in all the Bible, Zechariah 3. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to what? Accuse him. And that's what he's doing. He's accusing. You're no good. You're ugly. No one can love you. If people really knew who you were, you are worthless. You, 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 you'll never fit in. You'll, you'll never be successful. You, you, you are nobody. How could anyone love you? Those sort of things. And every single one of us have had those thoughts. We've, we, we've, we've had those feelings. We, we've had those accusations in our head. And they are hard to crucify, aren't they? Because it's a spiritual battle you're engaging in. Luther was fond of, of saying that, that everything the devil said of him was mostly true. Except for whenever he left out the cross of Jesus. I am a liar. I am a terrible person. I am a sinner. I am corrupt. I am wicked, but all of that's been satisfied at the cross of Jesus. You have nothing on me. It is the gospel that defangs the great accuser. Secondly, lies and gossip. Jesus says in John chapter 8, you are your father the devil. Now, that'll, that'll get a crowd's attention. He was a murderer from the beginning. We'll come back to that. And does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He is a liar and the father of lies. Have you ever struggled with the issue of, of lying? Absolutely you have. Absolutely, yeah. And you see how they're related to accusation, isn't it? Accusation is, is what you are being told. The lie is what you are starting to believe. One of the things I, I like to do in, in, in counseling, and I've probably done this with, with some who, who may be here this evening, I, I don't know. Um, and and I, I will have them, they'll, they'll go through this and say, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to write down all these lies that you're telling yourself. Stupid, fat, ugly, no one loves me, all that sort of stuff. You write them all down. You write them down as you're, you feel the accusation, as you're prone to believe the lie. You just write them down and, and, and call them to the left. Then on the right, I want you, and I'll give a few passages, usually Ephesians 1 or something like that. And I want you to write down all the truths that are found within that passage. And I want you to choose today. Choose, will you believe the lie or will you believe the truth? Right, because the gospel is what gives truth. The truth is what will set you free. But we have a tendency to want to believe the lie. And related to that is that of gossip. I cut a lot of this out for the sake of space and time. Paul is saying, 1 Timothy 5, at the same time, widows also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. You notice what Paul's doing there is he relates and connects gossip, particularly gossip among brothers and sisters in Christ within the church to the demonic. Notice there, no one is speaking in Latin. Their English is just fine to do the damage. Right? There, there is nothing godly in it. There is nothing uplifting in it. There is nothing good in it. Nothing sanctifying gossip. And we're all guilty of this. Not just, not just women, but men are guilty of this as well. The goal is to tear someone down, not lift them up. It's demonic. And it has destroyed how many churches over something like gossip. And that is what Paul is warning this young ministry. You've got to watch. This will creep within the church, and it is demonic. It is to follow after Satan. Because you are doing essentially the work of the devil. If he is accuser, what is, that? what is gossip? It's more accusation. It's more lies. Did you hear what Cindy said after church? Nothing good in it. Thirdly, bitterness. Bitterness. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down in your anger, do not give the devil an opportunity. The word there is foothold. It's like climbing. The second he is there, he's got you. 
is the, I call it bitterness because it, he mentions anger. He said the, the, there is a time and a place for anger, and there are things that happen in this world you should be angry about. But bitterness has no role in the heart of the Christian. The bitterness is an unwillingness to forgive. We've had people leave this church because of the refusal to forgive, the refusal to reconcile, and it is demonic, is to surrender the spiritual battle to the devil. It ruins relationships, ruins marriages, ruins lives. I'm going to hold fast to what makes me angry. And every time someone brings it up, I'll get red in the face and I'll blog about it and tweet about it because I want people to know how righteous I am. There's nothing godly in it. It's demonic. And there is the devil with another foothold in your soul. You've never seen a bitter person who is a joyful person. And in the gospel, we just think we have peace and we have joy. Fourthly, violence, murder, suicide, all of it. We turn back to John 8. You are the father of your devil and you went to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. By the way, this should really convict us as Christians, especially as we, 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 we are tempted to lie in bed with politics. The history of politics usually turns in some way to violence, especially when politics becomes a religion. Be careful, Christian, not to fall for that. I cannot find anywhere in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, where Christians engage in violence for a political cause. I can't find it. Because it's the devil who was the murderer from the beginning. And whenever we play the what about game, well, they, they, they shouldn't have been there. They shouldn't have done this, or they shouldn't have done that. Or, uh, well, they got, they got their just desserts, all that sort of thing. None of that is godly. How do you reconcile, blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of God, to justifying violence for a cause? You're not going to find it. What you'll find in the New Testament is the apostles and the early saints are laying down their lives for the sake of the kingdom because enough violence happened at the cross. Enough blood has been shed. Because violence is demonic. When a man raises his fist against his wife, it's, it's demonic. When neighborhoods go at war with each other, it's demonic. When a nation tears itself apart, it's demonic. There's, there's nothing, nothing godly in it. Nothing whatsoever. And when a church screams and shouts and divides and destroys and ruins reputations, there's nothing godly in it. Nothing godly in it. Well, I'm in enough trouble. Fifthly, idolatry. This is John's point in, in 1 John. I want, you to, I want you to notice the justification here. I trust I'm not reading into this. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. This is the true God of eternal life. Little children is how he ends his book. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So notice here, he says the evil one wants you to deny the gospel. And in, in its... In its place is idolatry. Notice there, you will either worship the true God or an idol. That's why you won't find the word atheist in the Old Testament. You will find the word idolater in the Old Testament. You won't find the word secular in the Old Testament or New Testament. You will find the word idolater in the Old and New Testament. Why? Because everyone worships. You will either worship the true and living God who sent his son to die in our place for our sins and rose again the third day in victory, or you will be in idolatry. And he warns here not to let the evil one to, 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 to affect us. 
The gospel is the guard from idolatry. We see something similar in Paul in 1 John 10. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate with demons. It's very clear, I think, what Paul is saying there. Idolatry is demonic. Think about it. The devil has no problem with worship. He has a problem with proper, godly, and God-glorifying worship. Everyone worships. We've already talked about the the gods of this age, right? There's no problem with that. There's a problem with giving God all the glory. Last and finally, again, we we, we took some out. Um, We we, we did a whole three-week series, something like that, years ago on spiritual uh, warfare. Maybe we'll we'll look at it next year or sometime in the future. Um, But these these are a big six. I actually had ten on here. and that one is sexual sin. Paul tells married couples in 1 Chronicles 7, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again. Why? So that Satan will not tempt you for your lack of self-control. It's amazing. We skip over that part, don't we? Every husband who's ever read 1 Corinthians highlights this verse in, 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 in his Bible, shows it to his wife, and somehow they forget the spiritual warfare part, don't they? Notice there, he warns you against the demonic while well, telling you the answer is prayer as a couple. The glue is a physical act of intimacy. That's God glorifying and good. But the spiritual warfare there is, is, is temptation and, and the proper response to temptation is prayer together. Right? And what, is the, what, what comes out of that is physical, spiritual, emotional, mental uh, intimacy. But we could go back to the story of David, and, and, and I, think, I think it's fair to say that is demonic. How many lives are ruined there? How many lives continue to be ruined in the name of liberation, happiness, pleasure, my body? It's demonic. And it affects generations of people. Anymore, if I have someone who comes in and they just have a real awful story, I can, I can not think of an example, I'm sure there is one, where there was a daddy in a home and often they were unplanned pregnancy. It affects generations, generations, because it's demonic. Well, there is good news to, to all of this. We, we can come back to Ephesians 2. Where we must guard against the flesh and wage war. We must guard against the world and its desire for us and our spiritual enemy, the devil. But notice Paul didn't stop writing in verse 3. That's the good news. There's the rest of the chapter. And the two best words you'll find in the book of Ephesians, you should highlight. It's right there in verse 4. I, you, you probably don't have to look at it. What are those two words? I've been in all of our translations, including the the good one, King James, right? The one that came down from above. What is it? But God. But God. This is your story. You succumb to the world, the flesh, and the devil. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he lavished upon us, he loved us. Even when we were dead, 
He made us alive together in Christ. Notice, for one, this is the exclusive act of God by means of redemption. To made alive is a clear reference to the resurrection. And notice the resurrection is not just tied to you and Jesus. He made us alive in Christ. Which means, in order for a Christian to wage war against the world, the flesh, and the devil, we must do it together. Because there is no temptation that is not common to man. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace, a gift is, is, is what he's describing there. You have been saved through faith. This isn't even something you've done. It's a gift from God. It's grace. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship. That's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? Christ has already defeated our foes, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And victory is found in surrendering to him, being found alive in him. So there is that bait and hook still there. And we will continue to be tempted by that bait. But the good news is, because our God is rich in Christ. We already have our full. We don't need another bite. There won't be an invitation. So let's, how about we stand and we'll close out. Be, be dismissed in prayer.